So it is October 30th, 2016. Our message today is called Slave. We want to begin with a passage. This is Philippians 2, 7. And I'm intentionally starting in the middle of a thought. It says, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. When you hear the word bondservant in Christianity, it is often dressed up. It's made pretty. It's thought of as a nice or noble kind of thing. And I'm not arguing with the nobility of it. We'll get to that in a minute. But there is nothing pretty about the word slave. I mean, not at all. In America, we tend to think of this in terms of black and white. But historically, the right way to think about it is in terms of those who had power and those that did not. Because men of every nation have enslaved men of other nations. Sometimes they enslaved their own. Right now in this city, there are people trapped in a sex trade that are in present-day slavery of every color. It is an incredibly ugly word, and Philippians associates it with Jesus Christ. That is one of those awkward moments. Like of all things that you think of, you don't want to think of Jesus and slavery in the same sentence. It is kind of um, antithetical if you think about it. Let's move to our next place. You talk about tough. That is a real surviving photo from some of the last of the slave trade. Look at that back. That's incredible. How one human being could do that to another human being. Somebody say that's gross. that's gross. When you see this photo, it's usually used as propaganda to get people to dislike each other, to get people to dwell on really horrible things. Sometimes it's used to cast a negative light on the Scripture. It is an ugly, ugly word. But let's read what the Scripture says about slavery. We know, this is 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. We know that the law is good. Say the law is good. good. If one uses it properly. See, the law is good, but it has to be used as God intended it to be. And men throughout the centuries have always used it in ways that he never intended. They make for themselves justifications out of God's word that was meant... To cut the human heart and cause us to act more like the Lord. Say the law is good. good. Psalm 119 verse 18 says, Open my eyes to the wonderful things in your law. In Isaiah 41 he says, It pleased the Lord to make the law great and glorious. In Romans 7 he said, The law is holy, spiritual and good. Nothing is wrong with the scripture. But something has always been wrong with the way that wicked people twist the scripture. We also know that the law is, not, is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful. Why do you have to have a law that says do not murder? Because people murder. You didn't have to have a law before you had somebody murder. Why do you have to have a law that says you don't do any harmful thing because somebody's done it? I, I was... One time standing in a medical 
uh, room, a surgery room, scrubbed in, everything sterile. And I watched them write on someone's knee. Make a note on the knee. Like, what on earth is that? And I realized it. Somewhere in history, somebody operated on the wrong knee. Or you wouldn't have to mark the right one. Does that make sense? Any law that you see is a response to wicked hearts. It's a response to a humanity that does things like that to each other. The ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Do you hear how negatively the word slave trader is used there? It's used in the same sentence with perverts and murderers and every other kind of rebel. And yet there are people that believe that the Bible endorsed this practice. They're ignorant men from an ignorant time. The truth is that the Bible looked at an existing social evil and sought to brought order to it. The same way that God's Spirit hovered over the darkness of the creation in the first light that appeared in the creation was His Word to bring order to it. It's not just long ago. It's also right now. Slavery is not something that just existed in the south part of the United States. It exists right now. This is a present-day picture of a man in Syria who happened to not be Muslim. And so he was enslaved. He was beaten. He's beaten. You, this picture is not very good, but from the, his back is marked in the same way as the other man. And you know what? He's not from Africa. He's also not a white Indo-European. This man also happens to be Syrian. So one religion that is uh, satanic in nature, Islam is a satanic religion. I couldn't say that enough. Muhammad is a pedophile. The book, Quran, is a satanic book. Could I be any more clear? I'm not scared to say that before the whole world. I'm not scared to say it in any country because it is the truth. You do what you feel like you need to do. I have been on record since five years before the towers came down talking about the wickedness of Islam because it is devilish. It did that to a human being. 1 Corinthians 7, 21 says this, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Does it sound like the Bible is promoting slaves to be free? Of course. But it's also acknowledging in the same sentence that slavery exists. It existed in Corinth. Can I tell you it was not a color issue in Corinth at all? It was based on the station of your birth. You could be born a slave. Not because you were a certain genetic. Not because you were a certain political affiliation just because of the womb that you happen to enter the world through. Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's what? The Bible is the story of men being called out of slavery. Sometimes the slavery is spiritual. Sometimes the slavery is physical. Sometimes the slavery is physical and spiritual. 
But the Bible is the story of liberated slaves. And I'm going to tell you every man in this room is either liberated or is a slave today. There is a noble principle in Scripture that backwards, ignorant men twisted. They were educated. They were bright. Just like Nazis were educated and were bright. But the mind of sinful man is death, no matter how educated. In fact, those can just be fig leaves. A man can drive a beautiful car, have a beautiful education, have a beautiful wife, have a beautiful home, and still be a damnable sinner hiding behind his good deeds. We see it all of the time. It's true in this room. It's never not going to be true in any room of any size. Because men have been deceived by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They choose for themselves rather than have God choose for them. Listen to the nobility of this principle and then I'll tell you how it was twisted. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Ignorant backwards men took this as an endorsement of slavery. They did it in the medieval times. They did it in the American South. They did it in biblical times. It's not an endorsement of slavery. It's the triumph of Christianity that says regardless of your station in life, regardless of how you were born, simply by your behavior, you have the ability to change the world around you. It is the voluntary surrender of rights that are the right of every man for the sake of the man who is mistreating you. One of the great marks of Christianity is that you can be mistreated and be strong enough to love them anyway. As a pastor, I do it all of the time. Look at verse 25 and tell me it's not the great balancing verse. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. There is no human being. Obadiah, the 15th verse, literally says that the day of the Lord is coming when every man will be repaid for his deeds, whether they're good or bad. And they will be paid back into his own lap, Obadiah says. There is no evil that exists on this planet today that will not be accounted for in the life to come. You think you can get away with your pride now. You think that you're getting away with your rebellion to the Lord now just because there is no temporal punishment this moment. Don't you believe for a moment that when you stand before the king, he will absolve you of guilt. He will absolve no man of their guilt. Unless every deed in their life has been brought into subjection to the reign of Jesus Christ. You want to know how much he hates sin? His son died for it. How would you feel about something that killed your son? Oh, church, we sit in these things. Act like it's no big deal. Lately, we've been railing against things like pornography, railing against such obvious sins. The less obvious sins are just as dangerous. Do you believe that because you listen to a certain kind of music, 
have a certain amount of money in the bank account and because you've been, in your eyes, a reasonably good person all of your life that you're safe? Are you kidding me? If you cannot say I'm being led by the Spirit daily, you might not even be a son of God, no matter how much doctrine you think you know. The gospel is such that it has gone out to the whole world. In the nation that had his book memorized, their pride blinded them into believing that in studying the scriptures they had life. And yet they refused to follow Jesus when he was standing in front of them. Do you believe that you are so different? Knowing a thing is not nearly the same as doing it. It's not even close. And the book of James says that when you hear it but don't do it, you are deceived. It's an incredible statement. The Bible is so clear about things like forgiveness. If you do not forgive, you cannot be forgiven. How can someone sit in the church of God and harbor bitterness? But it happens every Sunday somewhere. It happens every Sunday everywhere. I want to talk to you about an attractive choice for a minute. Titus 2 is another difficult passage. Mention slaves. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them. Not to talk back to them. Somebody said that's asking an awful lot. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way, say every way. They will make the teaching about our God, about God, our Savior, attractive. Say attractive. attractive. Do you mean to tell me that God values the gospel going out to men more than he values your personal freedoms? More than he values your feelings? More than he values your desires? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. It's why the call of the gospel requires a death sentence for you. If any man, say if any man, would come after me, he must deny himself. Say deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Friends, there is no such thing as having rights in the kingdom. In the kingdom, you have surrendered every right to the Lord. In any time, you sit back and cross your arms and say, well, I just don't know if I'm going to do that. You are a wicked, rebellious sinner. That's, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. So much so that those who had come into the freedom of Christ but were still in the temporal bonds of slavery, they don't talk back. They try to please their master. That grates on me just to say. I, I dislike the use of the word master there. It really bothers me. Does it bother you? Because it is so hard to think that you could have some brutal, ignorant fool who is raining abuse upon you and you are supposed to love that ignorant fool so that he might see Jesus and both of you be liberated. That is an incredible statement. But it is exactly what the Bible requires. If the Bible required that of a man who was a slave, how much more a man who thinks they're free? Why do you turn the other cheek? Why do you smile and pray for those that persecute you? Why would you do those things? Because your life is not your own. 
Are you beginning to see just how much of your life may still belong to you? There were stories circulating during the time of the British slave trade in the Americas. And those stories were about an island in the West Indies. Paris Reedhead wrote about this in the uh, book published in 1992. And um, there was a particular item, island where a British slave master had 3,000 men. Say 3,000. 3, How many were saved at the day of Pentecost? 3,000. 3, that number stuck in the hearts of the people in Germany who were hearing the story. Because this particular British captain knew that one thing above all else was dangerous to let the slaves have. If the slaves got hold of the gospel, then you could not break their spirit. You could not hold them down. So he made a proclamation that no slave was to receive the gospel, period. If a missionary were shipwrecked on the island, they were to be sent off of the island or imprisoned. No one gets the gospel on this island. And there's a very good reason for it. Those that had power were few in number. Those that were enslaved were many in number. And he knew that he hung on to his power by a thread. Oh, Christian, you hang on to the reins of your life by a thread. Because right now you can be self-determined. Right now you can look and say, I do what I want. But you get out on this road and get in an auto accident... When you're in the hospital and you can't feed yourself, who do you call to pray for you? Who is it that you ask for help when you feel powerless? See, your power is an illusion. It is a total, absolute deception. You feel powerful in the moment because you have choice, and that choice makes you feel strong. God can put you in a situation where you don't have choice. I've seen the most stubborn men I've ever met have to have someone else clean them up after going to the bathroom. And yet they still cling to their pride. How is that? Because we are an inherently sinful and selfish bunch. But the power of the gospel will change and renew a mind. This British captain on the island wanted to hang on to his power. And word came to a sect in Germany called the Moravians. In two young men, not quite 20 years old, how many of you in here are 20 or younger? Raise your hands. Front row, stand up. These guys, right here, guys, girls too. This case happened to be young men. They heard that there were 3,000 men living in chains, you can sit down, that would never have the gospel. They heard that there was no chance that a missionary would be received upon the island. And they determined that they must go. That they must go to the island. Now, this presents a problem. If a missionary can't be received, how do I go? The answer came to them in prayer. They must go with slaves. These young, white Moravians sold themselves into slavery to bring the gospel to the West Indies. After the town tried to talk them out of it. See, when you do something that is radical, that is bold, that is daring, the people you expect to support you, your family members, 
those who are right around you, they usually will not do it. Do you know why? Because then they have to come to grips with the state of their own life. So rather than love you for it, they distance themselves from you. Jesus Christ said this would be the case. He said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. The first division that he described was between parents and children. Do you know why? Because the gospel does that. When the generation after you is surpassing you, it makes you take stock of your life. It makes you swallow your pride. If your heart's in the right place, all you have ever wanted is for that generation to surpass you. So this Moravian village tried to talk them out of going. And when they couldn't do it, they accompanied them to the pier. When the two boys were on the ship and nearly out of sight, there was a cry from the dock. Tears, wailing, lamenting. They ought to have been celebrating. And this cry on this slide came forth. It said, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering." This was the cry of those who were being willfully enslaved for the liberation of others. See, this is the call of Christianity. That you would enslave yourself to the principles of Christ so that others might be set free. It's because you hate slavery that you become a slave of Christ to liberate others. It turns out that men hate slavery to Christ the same way they hate slavery. They would rather not have to think about these things. So God forbid there be a preacher that shoves it in their face every moment that he gets a chance. I am such a man, and I will be until the day that I die. And when I say there's no favoritism, we can be friends for 20 years, 30 years, we can go to life. It will never change. You cannot bend me. You cannot break me. I cannot be seduced away and certainly will not be intimidated away. I am a slave of Christ. Amen. The Bible is full of beautiful stories like Philemon and Onesimus. You know, if you think Philemon's a beautiful book, you need to read it. It is a beautiful book and yet it is pretty ugly in the way that it, it, it begins. See, Philemon was a slave owner. And he was a slave owner that came into Christ. That's awesome. And Onesimus was a runaway slave who ran into Paul. What are the odds that Philemon, who owns slaves, knows Paul, and then Onesimus, a runaway slave, runs into Paul? I suspect that he saw something in Paul that said, if I could get to that guy, i never seen my master listen to anybody like that. If I could get to that guy, I wonder what would happen. In verse 15, perhaps the reason he was separated from you, this is Paul writing to the slave owner, Philemon. Perhaps he was separated, the he is Onesimus. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer a slave, say no longer. No longer a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. How could that be better than a slave? From a worldly point of view, you want someone who just does what you tell them to do. You don't mind hurting them, and you know that if they get a chance, they're going to hurt you. 
But in Christ, you both esteem each other's need greater than your own. And you do whatever is in your brother's best interest that is so much better than slavery. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. You thought I was rough on you about your finances. The gospel is about freedom from slavery. Eight times in the scripture, eight, we see this kind of scripture. In Deuteronomy 5, 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To a liberated people, he is reminding them that they began in slavery. Because when you know what you came from, it stays with you when you treat other people a certain way. One of the saddest commentaries is when people are convicted of their sin, they know how wicked they are, they come to a place where they feel the saving grace of Jesus, and then live that way long enough that they forget how wicked they are. So they end up talking about having been a pretty good person all their life. They esteem themselves pretty highly in their own eyes. And they have very little need for the Lord to lead them daily because they're leading themselves just fine. It's very hard to get people who are already saved to act like saved people. But you find someone who's got an addiction... You find someone who is under the weight of their sin, they'll do anything that the Lord says to get free from it. Do you love the Lord less because he's been better to you? Isn't that a strange concept? In Exodus 22, verse 21, he says, Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. He says nearly the same thing in Exodus 23, 9. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens. Say you yourselves. You yourselves yourselves know how it feels. There's not a person in this room that does not know what slavery feels like. Do you know why? You were slaves to sin. Every time you got angry and you couldn't control your anger... And it sent you into a hysterical rage for two or three days. Every time your pride blinded you to the truth. This is slavery. It's when you don't get to do what you want. Something more powerful than you. Say more powerful. powerful. Is manipulating you like a rag doll. Tell me that you are not slaves. When you yield to sin. A man who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it is a pitiful, miserable, weak slave. So what do you know that you need to do? And you put it off. You dismiss it. It applies to someone else but not you. You've already been there and done that. Well, then it ought to be evidenced by the hundredfold disciples in your life, right? 
It ought to be evidenced by every city you've ever lived in. Christians abound. Slaves would run away from their master to come and find you because like Paul, if they could get to you, there would be life there. That ought to be your testimony, right? If it's not your testimony, then where does your confidence come from? It comes from having attended churches for years and years and years that told you exactly what you wanted to hear. You paid them and you felt a measure of control. In fact, you were probably helping them, not them helping you. Do you know how idolatrous that is? You know how sinful that is? You've just described the American Christian. The reason the gospel is powerful every other place is they come to Christ powerless. They come to Christ resourceless. They come to Christ poor in spirit, abject spiritual poverty. They have nothing if the Lord doesn't give it to them. And when the Lord gives it to them, they realize that they were but debtors and they want to spend their lives serving Him. How have you come to Christ in your great strength, your wisdom? Or have you come to Christ in abject Poverty. I invite you in your own time to take the remaining scriptures and look at the constant reminder to God's people where they have come from so that it determines how they treat others. Let's consider how the nation began. The nation of Israel began with this passage in a manner of speaking. It's true that the people existed before this, but they existed as slaves. The Lord said... I have indeed seen the misery of my people. Say, he sees it. it. I have heard them crying out. Say, he hears it. it. And I am concerned about their suffering. He's concerned. Say, he's concerned. Do you see the misery of those trapped in slavery? Do you hear their cries? Are you concerned about them or has your life become about your next meal? Has your life become about what you deserve? Has your life become about how comfortably you can retire? Because the God we serve sees the misery of the people on this planet. He hears them. He's concerned. And do you know what he says in verse 8? I have come down to rescue them. Oh, come on. He reaches down. Where did he find you? On a mountain high or in a valley low? Where did he find you in the height of your pride or in the depths of your despair? He reaches down. God never has to reach up to find you. There's a friend of mine in India. He's more godly than any man in this room. And I will stand the test with you if you would like to put that to the test. He's planted many churches. He's given away all he has to see his son do well in ministry. His son and his grandson and his great-grandson are his crown and his pride. He possesses nothing in this world, and yet he possesses everything of value. And he looked at me when talking about pastoral problems, and he said, The thing is, Eric, when a man reaches 60, he often wants more respect than God. Oh, man, that I had his wisdom. That happens when you've been ministering 50 years. He understands people in a way that often it takes years to gather. I suspect that that's true of an Indian. 
And in America, it probably is true by the age 30. We love everything bigger. Everything We put ourselves in the center of a map. I mean, you buy a map of the United States, and the United States is the center of the map. Comes to us quite naturally. I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And what's that say? What's it say? What's it say? You want to take pride in something. Who have you reached down to help up? Who have you been moved by the Spirit of God and you recognize they're in the same shape that you were in and so you want to help them? See, one of the damnable things about the theologians of the 17 and 1800s, they saw themselves in a new class of people. And whoever was in the other class, well, they must just have the mark of Cain or something. What a bastardization of the Scripture. What a total twisting of the heart of God. But see, it allowed them to justify their own position. And you know what? Nothing's changed about the church. What they're most interested in is justifying their own lives right now. Defending their history, even if their history is indefensible. Now you think I'm talking about historians and theologians. I'm speaking about you. Tell me something. Does your history... I'm talking about from Christ to right now. Show fruit everywhere that you go? Or does it show apathy everywhere you've been? See, when God's people become indifferent to the cries that are around us, worldwide and here, and we think our responsibility is simply floating a check into that box, when that's what we believe, the world goes to hell around us, and we have hell within us and know it not. Our job, is to be the very hand of God. Amen. The sentence that is not on this screen, and I left it off on purpose, is verse 9. He says, so go now. I am sending you. Amen. See, our God cares enough to reach down and to raise up, to rescue, to deliver, but He uses His people to do it. And if we become indifferent, then what happens to them? How can you have the heart of God and be so concerned with only your own? Existing social evils and compassion. Exodus 21, verse 26, is dealing with something that already existed within the culture. And it is seeking to bring compassion to an existing practice. If a man hits a manservant, or a maidservant in the eye and destroys it. He must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or a maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. I don't like the idea of anybody being hit. I hate it. But can I tell you that it was going on whether or not this verse was there? And this verse sought to bring humane treatment to people that were being treated inhumanely. If you were the slave, let's just imagine for a minute you're the slave. I would be working on my tooth day and night to get loose. I'd be asking for a smack in the face because it meant freedom. I'm going to tell you the truth. A smack in the face still sets you free. He'll baptize you in the criticism of those you love. 
to free you from the praise of those you love so that you can't be controlled by those you love. He'll do that to you. He'll do it because he wants to be your first love, your only love. He will teach you that his voice is the one that matters, that he is the father of all men. He will teach you that. He will show you what it is to obey his voice in the face of the carnal. He'll do that because it will show that he is your Lord and you do it for no other reason. This is why good men like Jacob still didn't understand Joseph. It's why good men in the word still didn't get on the right side of things. God makes sure that if you were called, you must have the disapproval of those who are around you from time to time. It's how you know you do it for the Lord. Did you see the word go free? Go free. Go free. The gospel is about going free. Say go free. Go free. Freedom is the goal. So in Exodus 21, 2, look at this. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. Somebody say six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. There are a couple ways that you could end up in this position. You could have been uh, indentured, meaning you could have looked at somebody who had uh, land, who had belongings, and for whatever reason, you didn't. And you say, you know what? I sell myself to you. I will do whatever you want, whenever you want, work however you want, and I will do that for an anticipated gain. I want that field for myself when we're done. Essentially, this is what Jacob did with Laban. He did whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, for seven years for the price of a bride. He got a bride he didn't want, and he worked another seven years. You could be in this position because you were a debtor, meaning that you had run up debts, the people had called the law, and you could not pay the debt, so the law said you must become their slave and your work be the repayment. Or you could be like a Gibeonite. You were a foreigner who was supposed to be run out of the land and killed altogether, but instead you were enslaved to work for the people of God. Those are the three ways that that could happen. Six years, and then you go free. There was nobody who was supposed to be in permanent slavery. Slavery was something that existed for a time to teach man something, and freedom from slavery would teach man something altogether more. Has your slavery extended beyond six years? Have you been struggling with the same anger problem for 20 years? Have you been struggling with the same thing that Christ was crucified for your entire life? See, when we look at our Christian walk and you see in month one I have this problem and in year 20 I still have this problem, you were extending slavery beyond its term. You were supposed to be free and complete in Christ. How many of you want to pay for something longer than you agreed to? Nothing is supposed to have mastery over us. 
I want to talk to you about Isaiah 40 for a minute in Israel's slavery. We're going to leave that on the screen. Turn in the book in your lap to Isaiah 40. Amen, that brother is fast. Are y'all still with me today? Yes. I've only begun to challenge us. But the good news is there is hope in this challenge. Isaiah 40. What an interesting passage. Greatly misunderstood through the years. Comfort. Comfort my people. Says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley, say valley, Valley. shall be raised up. Every mountain, say mountain, And hill made low, a rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of God will be revealed, and all mankind, say all, All. mankind together will see it. This passage is so misunderstood, it's unreal. When we read this, and we say, wow, comfort, comfort, is it comforting to you that you would be paid back twice what you deserve? Is that comforting? You should have a 10-year prison sentence, but you get a 20-year prison. Anybody comforted by that? How, How about this? Am I speaking tenderly to you if I say, you deserve one punch in the face, but I'm going to give you two? Is that tender? But this passage says, comfort, comfort. Speak tenderly to my people. Your hard service is complete. You get paid back double. That's because the Hebrew word here is kefel. And it means to take one piece of paper and fold the bottom to the top and drive a nail through it. The reason that's important is if this was the front door of your house and you were a debtor, this is where you hang the debt. Your debts would be listed publicly for everyone to see. The idea was that you would be ashamed and you would pay them. If you didn't pay them, you could be enslaved, debtor's prison. And that would let everyone know that the person who enslaved you wasn't doing anything wrong. Look at all you owed him. He was just. He was right. And on the day that your list of debts each had been crossed off and it was done, it was folded over and a nail was driven through it to show your debts were paid. You're free. The reason this is comfort, comfort to the people, the reason it's tender is they are no longer paying for their sin. Someone has arrived on the scene and has marked their debts paid in full. The reason this is comfort, comfort is because those who were in the depths of the valley are going to be raised up and those who were on the powerhouses of the mountain are going to be brought low because the gospel does that. It afflicts the comfortable and it comforts the afflicted. It takes the man who thinks too highly of himself and it squashes him and the man who thinks too lowly of himself and it exalts him that all mankind might see something, whether slave or free, that every man would see the glory 
of God. Can you see it? What would it mean to have your debts paid? Look with me at Exodus 20 in verse 5. 21 in verse 5. I wrote that slide wrong. But if a servant declares, if a slave, this word in Hebrew is ebed. In case you're wondering if it means something other than slave, it doesn't. There is a word in Greek that correlates to it. It's called doulos. And doulos is what is translated slave, servant, and bond servant. They're what's called cognates. They're equivalents. There is no linguistic mess that you can derive that will get you out of what these words actually mean. But if the servant declares... I love my master. What? How could that happen? And my wife and children. And I do not want to go free. Am I the only one in here that is looking at that and going, it's got to be a typo? If I love my master, my slave master, and I don't want to go free, I would have to think that, like, that never, ever, ever happened. I mean, I have a hard time loving my boss, right? I had a boss named Rogesterman Ferris, and uh, he, he was the most inept man I've ever seen. Um, and I think God put me in his life and him in my life simply to see whether I could love someone that was abusing me, abusing my talent, abusing everything about me. And you know what? It was difficult. I spent a lot of time crying out to the Lord for liberation. You know when I was actually liberated? When I began to care about Ferris and love him. When I realized that he was inept, but he was also a husband. And he was also a father. And he also had a family to feed. It was no longer so much about proving that he really wasn't doing the work. I was doing it. And it was more about how do we help this man because he's got a position that he's completely inept in. And what happens to his family? That's when I actually was liberated. It's the first time I could go to work and not be mad. It's the first time that he could talk to me and I didn't want to say ugly things to him. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and I do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. Who would trade a completed six-year sentence for a lifetime sentence because they love their master that much? Who does something like that? I tell you what, anybody in here got a car payment? When it's done... You write to that financer and you tell them you like paying them so much. You're going to pay them for life. Anybody in here bought more than one car? Well, you're already paying for life because you love that car. You think that you bought your car. You never owned a car. You just make payments on cars for life. This scripture perplexes me. How do you love someone that you're enslaved to. Can we go to that next slide? 
This man's name is Paris Reed Hith. Aside from having a funny name, he wrote a book that I like called Getting Evangelicals Saved. That's uh, it's right up my alley. Getting Evangelicals Saved. His next book was called Beyond Believing. That's, uh, that's pretty challenging. It's challenging like this message is. One of the things that I like about Paris is he kind of told it how it was. And he did it with a certain gravitas that only those old guys could do. We've kind of lost our vocabulary, right, LOL? And um, what happened is Paris tells this story about a, a wealthy young Englishman. And he comes from uh, Britain to the gold rush in California. Well, he's in the gold rush. He works hard. He makes a veritable fortune, right? With all of that money, he's on his way back to Britain. And the way that he's got to get back there is to go through the port of New Orleans. There was a direct shipping route from New Orleans to Britain. And while he's in New Orleans, he gets to Jackson Square. Jackson Square had a slave market, disgusting slave market. It's where most of the slaves entered the United States from the West Indies because there's also a direct shipping route there. He looks into the crowd, not particularly moved by anything, and he hears commotion. And in the commotion, he noticed four or five guys that had come from a tavern. And they were counting their money together. They were pooling their money for something. And then just notice, because it's not wise to have your money out in, in public, especially in a tavern-type setting. And he noticed that they're pooling their money and they're counting because there is a beautiful young woman on the slave block. Someone a lot like Larissa. Come here, honey. Larissa came uh, into our church when she was 18, 17. 19. She came from the Ivory Coast to the U.S. and from U.S. City to here. Don't y'all love Larissa? Yes. I have always thought Larissa was one of the prettiest girls in the church. I'm shocked she's still single, right? But it'd take a special man, a really special man. We believe that so strongly that we will step between you and her if the Lord doesn't have all of you. Because Larissa's worth something. Do y'all believe that? Yes. Now what if this is not just a woman in the corner? It's Larissa. Larissa, could you take a seat on the stage right there? So over here, stand up, guys. A group of men stand in a circle like a huddle. They're counting their money. They're pooling. Glance back towards Larissa. They're looking at Larissa every now and then because these men are beginning to plan what they intend to do with her. The Englishman is over here by Jason. He can see this happening. And he's concerned because these men look like they're up to no good. It's not like they simply want somebody to help them cook. 
They have negative intentions on this beautiful young woman and she's standing there in chains, barely clothed. What kind of hatred do they have for her? What kind of hatred must she have for them? What must that be like? The Englishman listens and there's a bid from the group. I don't know what the bid was, but let's for argument's sake say that it was $50. The Englishman listens. He waits for another bid. There is no bid. While I don't know the amounts, I do know that in the story he paid exactly twice what any slave of the time would ever be worth. He bids and he says, I'll pay double. I will pay double for her. Now, mind you, she is from Africa. She doesn't understand what she's hearing at all. She only sees this group of men want her, and she doesn't want to go, and that guy over there wants her, and she doesn't want to go. The Englishman walks up. He pays twice. She sees what is paid. She's been watching what a human life is worth all day because they've been selling people all day and she wonders what her life is worth. And she's surprised at the amount of money that is paid for her. But not surprised in a good way. Because if somebody paid twice for her, they probably want to do worse things for her than the mob did. So the man receives her papers and he comes to collect his human being. Anybody disgusted yet? What is she thinking? He grabs her chains and he takes her and she resists. She begins slapping him. She begins spitting on him. And he pulls. She fights to get away. And he pulls. And she fights to get away. And he pulls. She fights to get away. And he pulls. The entire time he is dragging her towards the registrar's office. Where you register your property. But she can't read. She doesn't know where she's going. He takes those chains. He throws them over his own shoulder. And he walks into the registrar's office dragging this woman behind him. Crowd watching because they wanted her. He registers his purchase. And then comes back and presents her with a scroll. But she can't read the scroll. She has no idea what it says. And she spits in his face and curses him in her own language. And he's handing her her emancipation. And when he undoes her chains and puts the paper in her hands, she's beginning to understand. He bought me. He purchased me. Because he wanted me to be free. He didn't try to enslave me. He's actually trying to set me free. And the Englishman pushes and says, go. And the strangest thing happens. As he walks, 
there is no one in the crowd that she now trusts. She doesn't know what they're going to do. She's free, but she can't read. She's free, but she still feels powerless. She's free, but she doesn't know what to do with her freedom. So she runs after the Englishman, and she says, even though you set me free, I want to be your slave. Because I'm in a foreign land, and I don't know how to live, and I don't know what to do, but I trust you. This is what salvation looks like. He buys you to set you free. He buys you not to do you harm, but so that you will love him enough to let him do you good. He gives you freedom in exchange for your chains. And all he really is asking that you do is present those chains back to him. If the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children, I do not want to go free. What kind of man doesn't want to be free? The kind that fell in love with the master. See, I fell in love with him. I don't want control of my life. I don't want control of my emotions. I don't want control of my own freedoms. I want the master in my life. So I go to the very same doorpost. Because it's an Israeli doorpost that is covered in blood. And I say, please, where the blood of the lamb was shed, would you pierce me? The very same doorpost where my old debts are now folded over and paid. It is the bloody, rugged cross of Calvary. The man who visits the cross daily can't be full of pride. The man who visits his cross daily could only be described as stubborn about righteousness, not his own self-governance. The man who visits the cross daily can't live in lusciviousness. He has been set free and now another holds his chains. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Romans 16 or 6, 17 says it this way. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free, say set free. And have become slaves to righteousness. He set you free. And now you should want to be his slave. The man who doesn't want to be his slave is not truly free. Oh, that you could understand what I'm saying to you, Christian. I quoted half of this verse earlier and I'll finish the verse now. 1 Corinthians 7, 22. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freeman. You were a slave, now you're free. Similarly, he who is free when he was called is Christ's slave. We move from slavery to the world to a freedom in Christ and so we become slaves of Christ. The man who is not Christ's slave has never been 
set free. He bought you to set you free. In Psalm 40, verses 5 through 7, Jesus Christ's Spirit speaking through the man David says, You have pierced my ear. It is written about me in your scroll. I have come to do your will. Jesus Christ set us the perfect example of what it was to be truly free. And so he made himself the slave of the Father. In Isaiah 42, 1, he is spoken about as my servant in whom I delight, my slave in whom I delight. The chapter goes on to describe freedom to the nations. In Isaiah 52, verse 13, through the whole 53rd chapter, the man being spoken about who is marred beyond appearance is the slave of God. That's what the word is in Hebrew. The price paid... For Jesus Christ, in Matthew 26, verse 15, is 30 pieces of silver. In Exodus 21, 32, that is the price of a slave. And Zechariah 11 prophesied about it before it happened. The scripture that we began with is Philippians 2. He became a slave. He emptied himself of all. He made himself of no authority or reputation, he became a slave. And what did the Lord do with him? Raised him above all men. If you examine the passages that are at the bottom of the screen, you will find in every one a Christian is describing himself as a slave. It would be very easy to focus on the Apostle Paul Luke wrote Acts in Acts 2.18, slave. In Acts 4.29, slave. Paul wrote Romans 1, slave. Philippians 1, Paul wrote it, slave. I'd like to look at Jude. Turn with me to Jude as we near the end of our message. You can leave that slide on the screen. We're going to read the very first verse of Jude. Jude, verse 1, says, Jude, a slave, servant, doulos, bond slave of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. I'd like you to see, though, something in this verse that is mind-blowing. Jude is the brother of James. James is the brother of Jesus. This is not James the apostle he's speaking about. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who later pastored the church in Jerusalem. He had already been martyred. In other words, Jude is Jesus' natural brother. He didn't believe in him during his earthly ministry. He actually went with Mother Mary in the Gospel of Mark, thinking Jesus was out of his mind. He was a skeptic. I mean, after all, this is his brother, he probably resented that his brother seemed to think he was better than him. He might have resented that his mama seemed to favor Jesus over him. Maybe because his daddy died young, Jude resented that his older brother, who should be carrying the load at home, 
is off gallivanting around pretending to be some kind of prophet while he's left with all the housework. Jude had all of the problems that brothers have. But he so fell in love with Jesus when he got a revelation of who he actually is. That family meant nothing because the truth is your family is those who do the will of God. If blood is thicker than water for you, then you are sinfully idolatrous. Because for Jude, it wasn't. He fell in love with the brother that he had looked down on. He fell in love with him to the extent that he calls himself the bond slave, the willing slave, the one who gave up his rights like the Moravians for the benefit of being slave of Jesus Christ. That is a saving faith. A saving faith says, I see that you have set me free. I cannot go my own way. I am woefully equipped to walk in this world. I don't know the language of the world anymore. I don't know the people of the world anymore. Everywhere I look, there's nefarious intent, but you are the one and the only that I can trust because you've come from the Father's side. I don't trust my own judgment. I can't read right. I don't trust my own arm. I've been in chains before. I trust you and you alone. So please take me as your slave. That's what a real walk with Jesus Christ looks like. It doesn't come through professional organizations. It doesn't come through institutions. It doesn't come neatly packaged based on your giving statement to hell with your giving statement. It comes in the presentation of your will and your rights straight to the king on a daily basis. If any man would come after me, say any man, he must deny himself. He must deny himself. That means present yourself as a slave to him. He must take up his cross. And follow the master. Our final slide for you today. Peyton, you might make your way up here. This woman is a hero. Because she was a freer of slaves. Harriet Tubman worked on the Underground Railroad. She said what very few conductors could ever say. Her train never came off the tracks. And she never lost somebody who was supposed to be on the train. She gave her life in the service of freeing others. And when asked whether she had freed slaves, she said, I freed thousands of slaves. I could have freed thousands more if only they knew they were slaves. I can't tell you the extent to which I relate to Miss Tubman. I have seen men saved. I've seen slavery fall off. But I've seen far more sit in the chains of their pride the chains of their self-governance, the chains of their self-will. They look and they go, I'm not in porn like those people. I'm not a drunkard like those people. But you don't see the chains that are around your neck that are evidenced by the way that you determine everything in your own life. You're a chain to your flesh while claiming that you are a slave of Christ and it simply will not do. The mark of a son of God is Romans 8, 14. He is led 
by the Spirit of God. Say, well, I try to hear from the Lord, and I can't. That's because sin hardens the heart. Hebrews says it plainly. Psalm 135 says clearly that those who make idols, your pride is an idol, those who make idols will become as deaf and blind as the idols they make. In Matthew 13, Jesus said this of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You're ever seeing but never understanding. He was calling them idolatrous. In the seventh chapter of Luke, Luke lays it out in the way that I'm hoping to lay it out for you. He says they rejected God's purpose for their lives because they refused to be baptized. It's not because they were scared of water, friends. It's because they didn't want anyone to think that they weren't already righteous. So they rejected God's purpose for their lives. Jesus said, I've played the flute for you, I've sang the dirge. And you will not respond appropriately, but wisdom will be proved right by her actions. Joy Rezora quoted wisdom's voice today in our worship service. And I hope you can hear wisdom's voice in the Holy Spirit speaking to you now. Could you stand to your feet?